Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. We're approaching Thanksgiving this week during a time of great turmoil, especially regarding the state of Israel. So it's a really timely opportunity to have a conversation about Jewish history and Israel that can, so to speak, shine a little bit of light in the darkness. Rabbi Meir Soloveitchik has written just such a book, Providence and Power, Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. Rabbi Soloveitchik is a prominent public intellectual. You can also check out his podcast, Bible 365, in the show notes. He serves as the director of Yeshiva University's Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought, and he's also the rabbi at Congregation Shirith Israel in New York, which is the oldest Jewish congregation in the United States. We're proud to say that he's also a Princeton graduate. He got his PhD in religion here in 2010. This conversation is going to truly move from ancients to moderns. We're going to talk about Jewish politics and statesmanship all the way back with King David, moving all the way to the foundation of Israel and to the present time. I hope that this conversation is a blessing for you just as it was for me during this season, which is so beautiful but has been so difficult for so many. With no further ado, let's jump in. Rabbi, welcome to the show. It's a real honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. And Madison does such important work. And uh, its leader and founder, uh, Professor George, is my very dear and revered teacher. So it's a real privilege to be speaking with you. Well, thank you for your kind words. Um, and it was a real privilege to read your book as well, which was super powerful. Um, so I want to kick us off here. Um, you start your story 3,000 years ago, um, and it's a story about Jewish statesmanship. And yet, for the vast majority of that amount of time, uh, there has been no Jewish state to be statesman towards. So talk a little bit about how that changes maybe the way that we should think about statesmanship and the way that Jewish statesmanship uh, has unraveled as time has gone on. Right. Well, that's precisely one of the reasons I wrote the book, which is that there haven't really been that many works about Jewish statesmanship, to my knowledge. And in part, that's because I think there is a certain presumption that in the almost 2,000 years of Jewish statelessness, uh, between the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 CE and the founding of the state of Israel in 1948, uh, there was no Jewish state, and therefore the assumption uh, seems to have been that by definition there can't be Jewish statesmanship. But of course, the marvel of Jewish history is that the Jews continued to think of themselves as a people. Mm. And we could talk about what sustained that form of identity, but they continued to think of themselves as a people. And uh, precisely in the trials of Jewish history and Jewish exile, actually were led by some extraordinary figures that engaged those in power on behalf of their people. And of course, that is what statesmanship actually means. One does not need to wield power in order to engage in statesmanship. So uh, just let me give one example uh, from American history. One of the great early moments of American statesmanship came uh, immediately after uh, the outbreak of the American Revolution, when Benjamin Franklin uh, in France uh, sought an alliance with that country uh, against the British. Mm. Now. When Franklin was was in Paris, you know, going to parties and going to the, the to the royal court, uh, he was of course and meeting with meeting with French noblemen, nobility, and officials. Franklin was of course not in any way presenting to the French the pressure of American power. The French had nothing mm. to fear from this nascent country that had just been founded. Rather, he came with a deep understanding of 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 French self-interest, at least as the French saw it. And he understood that the French wanted to deal an embarrassment to British power, and that this would, if rightly cultivated, uh, result in 
something very, very important for the nascent United States. And of course it did. It's not clear there would have been a Yorktown had it not right. been for, for, for Franklin's diplomacy. So was Franklin wielding power or presenting the threat or pressure of American power when he was in France? No, of course not. But was it one of the great acts of American statesmanship in the history of the country? Absolutely. And so with that in mind, we can understand that some of the greatest acts of Jewish Jewish statesmanship in Jewish history have been those that engaged people in power on behalf of the Jewish people with a deep understanding of both Jewish self-interest, but also the workings of statecraft uh, as reflected in those whom they engaged. And so that's a part of the story that I seek to tell in this book. It's only part of the story because, of course, we discuss leaders like David, who actually represented Jewish statesmanship from a position of power. And of course, I conclude by describing uh, two of the most important figures in the history of the modern state of Israel, David Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin. So there are moments in which uh, state power is wielded uh, by the Jewish statesmen uh, discussed in this book. Uh, that's also true of one of the great uh, female mm-hmm. uh, leaders in Jewish history, Queen Shlom Tzion, the only true queen regnant in Jewish history, whom I also discussed in the book. Whom I also, whom I also discussed in the book. Uh, so there are figures that lead from a position of power, but there are also many that acted in uh, a different capacity, and yet were still statesmen par excellence. The word power came up a lot in your answer. And it's interesting. I think, you know, looking at the title of the book, Providence makes total sense for anyone who has any familiarity with the Bible at all, um, that God kind of guides the Jewish people. Um, But power is a very interesting one, um, especially as you say, I mean, yeah, the Jews are usually not kind of working from a position of power in history. So when you talk about power, uh, is that the power of the Jewish people or God's power or kind of a political power within the regimes that the Jews are working in? Wonderful question. By power, I mean the power of the state, and that can mean the power of the Jewish state when the Jewish state is in existence, or the power of states in which uh, the Jewish people found themselves or the states that Jewish leaders engaged. The, The title, Providence and Power, is inspired really by the theme of the first chapter, which is the discussion of King David. And King David, I think, is, and this is the case I make in the book, is simultaneously probably the most famous Jewish political figure ever and simultaneously the most misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, Because the true greatness of David lay not in his brilliance as a military tactician or his bravery as a warrior or the power that he wielded as king, though of course these are all features in David's life. But the greatness of David is that even as he was making manifest all these themes, power, military might, military strategy, he simultaneously sees all these as entirely existing by the grace of God and asks his subjects to see them in the same way. And so you'll see modern books today that will talk about David and Goliath, and the book will say, actually, David is actually engaging a brilliant strategy when he's facing Goliath. This is not just not just a, a miracle. And the answer to that is, of course he is. Of course he is. Uh, but that's precisely the point, that in the very circumstance when in any other ancient story, you would expect the archetypal hero to see this moment as a sign of one's own glory, David instead sees these events as a sign of the glory of God. So that if you read the Psalms, as David is describing his military victories, never ever does he say, and this is thanks to my genius or thanks to my bravery. Mm. He, does that mean he didn't illustrate genius and bravery? Of course he did. But there's a fascinating dialectic in the Jewish ideal of statesmanship in which one has to see all power is ultimately existing only by the grace of God. Uh, and to place that at the, at the center of one's own statesmanship. And, and that, that I think is, 
is what makes the great Jewish statesman described in the book not unique, hmm. but at the same time an embodiment of a form of statesmanship that is rare. A, a friend of mine is the uh, great British historian Andrew Roberts. And when I interviewed him about his own biography of, of Churchill, so we discussed how, of course, one of the themes that comes throughout the book is, is Churchill's sense of his own destiny. And of course, it's even his own greatness. But one virtue that you would never apply to Churchill was humility. Yeah. And, uh, or as Andrew put it, uh, Churchill believed in God, but in Churchill's theology, God's job was largely taking care of Winston Churchill. Yeah. Uh, and so, <laughs> and, and so, and, and then I asked Andrew in, in our conversation, can you name a single great European statesman who was humble? So Andrew's favorite 19th century statesman is, is Napoleon. It's not oh, my yeah. favorite 19th century statesman, but it's his favorite 19th century statesman. No one would say Napoleon was humble. Not a strong contender. <laughs> not at all. I think the greatest 19th century statesman was Lincoln, and actually Lincoln did embody this very same dialectic. There's an amazing letter where Lincoln wrote about the Emancipation Proclamation, one of the boldest acts of, of, of statesmanship, it, not just in American history, but in the history of the world. And Lincoln in the letter outlines, this is in the midst of the Civil War, why he chooses to do what he did. But then he says, writing with a deep sense of providence that became much stronger during the war than what he had religiously earlier in life, Lincoln writes something like, uh, I want to emphasize, I do not believe that I have controlled events, but rather that mm. events have controlled me. And that's why, as Paul Johnson wrote, there is no contemporary of Lincoln's that could have ever given a speech like the second inaugural, which is really a sermon. He's not getting up there. He's about to win a war. He doesn't get up there and say, USA, USA, or <laughs> we did this. He says, we, we, there, there must be a providential reason why this has occurred and why, why not just in the South, but in the North, so many have died. And it must be that we are all complicit in the crime of slavery and we are all guilty. No, no one, no one ever gave a speech like that before uh, in, 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 in Western history, really. But of course, he did so because it's deeply inspired by a biblical perspective. It quotes the Bible. Yeah. When, when Lincoln says, um, the, the, he says, as was written uh, 3,000 years ago, so, so, so must, it say, must it be said today, uh, he's, he's the, and then he says that whatever God has, has, given to, has, has done to us is true and righteous altogether. He was quoting the Psalms. In Hebrew, Mishpatei Hashem Emet Tzadku Yachtav. And so uh, it's perhaps precisely because of the Hebraic impact on America that I think you will find parallels to biblical and the, the Jewish ideal of statesmanship, but it's rare. And so the title Providence and Power is meant to embody a certain dialectic or capture a certain tension that's supposed to exist in the in the Jewish and biblical ideal of statesmanship that we don't find throughout much of world history. Yeah, and I think it's so beautiful. I mean, what you said about Lincoln saying we're all complicit in slavery because yes. that is so so parallel to the way that the Bible treats David, where he's actually able to acknowledge his own guilt when he messes oh, up. Oh yes, oh yes. I mean, the, the the one of the most incredible scenes in David's life, of course, is when is when the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, "You are that man." Uh, and he he immediately says, I have sinned unto the Lord. And then, of course, we have a psalm, which David wrote, which begins uh, when the prophet Nathan came unto him uh, after after he had been with Bathsheba. And that that psalm is is one of the great works about repentance yeah. that exists in human history. Uh, and it, 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 one of the things that annoys me a lot, I've written about this, is that whenever people uh, justify uh, supporting uh, flawed political leaders, <laughs> they say, well, look at what David did. And, and of yeah. course, 
sometimes it's the right thing to do to support flawed political leaders. Sometimes that's a necessary and important thing to do. But don't compare them to David. I mean, David, can you can you imagine a, a modern political leader facing a scandal, writing a psalm like that? Mm. Uh, and so it's 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 David is is the biblical archetype of statesmanship not despite his flaws but in a certain sense because david's greatness has to be viewed also through the lens of his failings and his response to them Uh, and that's why even though of course he's very different from say moses uh, it is it is david with his deep sense of providence at every point uh, Moses, of course, has a deep sense of providence as well, but we don't. But but we see da- because David is so much more like us uh, than Moses. Uh, we also see what sets David apart from us, which is his deep sense of God's presence in every aspect of life. God is with him when he's angry. Uh, God is with him when he's sad. God is with him when he fails and when he falters and when he succeeds. Uh, and so if, as the uh, writer Thomas Cahill wrote, uh, that uh, usually in ancient literature, you don't see the interiority of the human being, right? Yeah. We're not given by Homer, you know, what are the Greek warriors thinking deep down in their soul uh, in the midst of battle? David does show that to us. So I would add to that a wonderful point that David also shows us how God and his providence is felt at every one of those moments in the very interior interiority of his statesman soul. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. A lot of these examples are, that you give David and Shomsion are kind of directly preceded by what you could say are pretty negative examples of statesmanship. Uh, before David, you have Saul. And famously, God says to the Jewish people, oh, like they say, we want a king. And God says, no, you don't. And they say, no, really, we do. And the first king he gives them is not the best. And similarly, uh, in the case of Shomsion, uh, she's married into this Hasmonean dynasty, which is descended from the Maccabees, which uh, in some ways I was surprised they were not yes. in your book because it's kind of a really uh, a really famous example of Jewish power. Um, so can you talk a little bit about those examples? Um, yes. Is God against Jewish statesmanship? So there's so much to say about this. This is really such a great, such a great uh, topic. Let's just talk about David and Saul first, and then talk about the Hasmoneans. I'm actually uh, working on a new podcast about the Maccabees. Oh, excellent! Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and they are uh, really a fascinating story and ultimately a tragic story. Uh, the, the first generation is is incredible, and then what follows is tragic. So yeah. each one should be examined separately. Let's talk first about David and Saul, if that's okay. So. Actually, uh, the as you mentioned, the, the, the people of Israel come to God and say, we want a king. And then there's another phrase they say, like all the nations. Mm. We want a king like all the nations. And so uh, what is a king for all the other nations? In the ancient world, uh, a king was, was marked was marked by glory, which set him apart from the people. Uh, and then there's the scene when Saul is chosen, and he's, and I'm not exaggerating, almost literally, the people of Israel say, you know, look, he's so tall, yay, God <laughs> saved the king, right? And, 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 and Samuel says that, he says, Haraitem in Hebrew, have you seen the figure that God has chosen? And I think my, you, you, I, I joke that, you know, because if you, you know, you know, when people run for president, they ask you, what's your favorite Bible verse? So <laughs> maybe you have a favorite Bible verse that you'd like to share. Um, but uh, when people usually ask me for the one that I quote most often, and this way I have it handy in case I run for president also, you know, um, so that's a joke. I'm not announcing my candidacy on, on this podcast. Uh, but, uh, but if I do run, I'm happy to give you an exclusive. Uh, but, but, but so then when Samuel is sent to Bethlehem following the failures of Saul, hmm. and he sees David's elder brother, who's tall, 
God says in the most incredible verse. He says, do not look unto his appearance or to his height, for I have rejected this. Mm. For I do not see as man sees. For man looks with the eye, but God looks to the heart. Beautiful. And then David comes forward. And God says, the Hebrew is better, but in English, God says, <laughs> uh, rise and anoint him, for this is he. Mm. Uh, and and uh, it, it's, it's sort of the biblical version of, of Henry V's question uh, in, in Shakespeare. What have kings that privates have not to save ceremony, save general ceremony? And so uh, in David, we find someone who is royal because of what's in his heart, for God looks to the heart. And what's in his heart is then revealed in the very next unfolding story, which is the story of David and Goliath, where David says to Goliath, uh, you come to me with the javelin and the spear, but I come with, to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Or before that, when he's inter when he's uh, there's a congregant of mine who once called this the interview of a lifetime. He's interviewing with Saul for uh, the chance to go fight Goliath. Yeah. And he says, he says, uh, I, I killed the lion and the bear. And it looks like he's talking about his own, his own might. And then David says, the God and the God who saved me from the lion and from the bear, he will save me from this Philistine. And so David has a deep uh, understanding of what he's capable of. But he also has a deep sense of the providence of God in the midst of his wielding of power. And that's what's in his heart. And the irony is that, and I say this all the time, the irony is that the most famous image of David in the history of Western art is Michelangelo's 17-foot-tall right. David in Florence right. about to launch the stone at Goliath. And of course, literally what right. Samuel was told is, look not to his heart. Look not to his height, but to his heart. And here we have David as a Greek god. Right, right, right. Simon Shama wrote that, you know, this is David as a Greek god. And I always say that if you want to see a much more accurate artistic depiction of David, it is Rembrandt's six-inch tiny etching of David <laughs> kneeling in front of his bed, the site of his sin with Bathsheba, basically mm. composing that psalm of repentance. Beautiful. It's a lot smaller than the David in Florence. But it captures so much more of David's, not his height, uh, but his heart. And so we're supposed to see David through the, the lens of the story of Saul. Uh, and there's much to say about Saul. And I often <laughs> thought that Saul would be a great subject for a book because there's so much that's tragic about a story. Yeah, and then, of yeah. course, he, ends up, he does end up dying fighting for his people. So it's, it's, it's the, the actual nature of his death is even biblically hard to discern so it's 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 very complicated but we're supposed to see david as as a contrast to, to the king that preceded him so now let's talk for a moment about the maccabees and the hasmoneans so the hasmoneans are seen or at least should be seen but i think are seen by jewish tradition as great warriors but not great political figures mm. great generals especially Judah. Judah is probably the greatest general in uh, Judah the Maccabee, uh, in Hebrew Yehuda Maccabee, or Judas Maccabeus, as he's often known. Uh, I think, and I'm come, I've come to believe, was the greatest general in all of Jewish history. Wow. And the, the reason for, the, for that is that if you study the book of the, the first Maccabees or second Maccabees, uh, you see that I think his greatest gift was, yes, he was a brilliant military strategist, but his greatest gift was infusing those that fought for him with a deep sense of God's providence that in its own right fused them into one almost organic unit. There's a wonderful book by Victor Davis Hanson called The Soul of Battle, hmm. which was about three uh, generals and their ability to fuse an army together through their leadership. The last one he talks about was Patton. Now, Patton had a lot of flaws also yes. as a person, but he was a brilliant general. 
and and his great gift was and Hansen writes about this taking the entire army that fought from the third army and really fusing them in, into one now Patton's rhetoric was very different than Judah's but Judah had this gift hmm. Judah had this gift but at least from the perspective of a lot of rabbis in the rabbinic tradition what the Maccabees who were priests should yeah. have done as soon as they earned independence was to eschew political leadership and to right. embrace their designated role, which was as high priests in the temple. And to some extent, and this is the view of, of one of the great medieval uh, rabbis and theologians, uh, Nachmanides, Moses ben Nachman, the original sin, as it were, of the Hasmonean dynasty was, and I write a little bit about this in the book, was uh, serving simultaneously as high priests and rulers, and ultimately as high priests and kings. And these are two totally separate roles. Yeah. And so if you read about the first generation of the Maccabees, uh, really, it's, that, it's not really an accurate term. There's the Hasmoneans. It was just Judah who was called the Maccabee. The, what they achieve is incredible. But as soon as the last living member of that generation, Shimon or Simon, earns Judean independence and puts on royal robes along with mm. being high priest. It's all downhill from there. His son-in-law assassinates him. Uh, and then by the time you get to two generations later, his grandchildren are killing each other. Uh, and that's the period in which this extraordinary woman, uh, I think the greatest female leader in Jewish history, uh, Shalom Tzion arises, but she rises precisely because, because sh she doesn't have the flaws that the then kings of the Hasmonean dynasty have. So um, Jews mark Hanukkah, which is the story of the cleansing of the temple by the Maccabees from pagan desecration, but we don't have any holidays that celebrate the Hasmonean monarchy. Yeah. And yeah. and for some rabbis, it's because, at, it's, at least for some rabbis, it's because, I should, some if not many rabbis, it's because, precisely because they shouldn't have been monarchs in the first place. It's so interesting the way that you describe the way the Hasmoneans acted when they gained power, because it strikes me as exactly the opposite, basically, of what George Washington did. Yes. That's exactly right. And so, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, about the way that kind of uh, that Judaism, I mean, I guess to say Judaism influenced the founding, people argue about that a lot. So maybe it would be a bridge too far to make a firm statement about it. Uh, but at least the kind of biblical Judaic spirit that informed it um, and how that kind of played a role in the way that the founders treated, treated the founding differently from the way a lot of European leaders. Oh, yes. I mean, that's one of my favorite subjects, of course. Uh, <laughs> but and I do think that the Hebrew Bible impacted the culture of the founding profoundly. Look, yeah. Benjamin Franklin's uh, suggested seal for the United States was Moses and Pharaoh at the splitting of the sea with the motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. That was the ultimate proposal put forward by a committee of Franklin, Adams, and Jefferson for the seal of the United States. And, of course, uh, to pick somebody who was himself radically secular, but knew the audience for whom he was writing, Tom Paine founded an entire argument against monarchy from the story of Samuel that you just cited. Yeah. And, and you know, he went, uh, you know, a little too far in the arguments that he was making, <laughs> but that was his skill, as it were, because as Adam said about Paine, Paine is very good at tearing down, not very good at building up. And so, uh, and, and, and so the, the biblical republic of Israel, as it were, uh, played a, a huge role in, in the political and civic imagination of the, of the nascent United States. And that's why when Paul Johnson wrote that article about the uniqueness of American statesmanship, wherein he cited Lincoln's second inaugural and made the point that you would never see uh, any any of Lincoln's contemporaries in Europe giving a speech like that. The title that he gave his 
article, it's an article in First Things, I believe, was a phrase utilized by Lincoln to describe the United States, which is, he spoke of, of God's almost chosen nation, which is a very fascinating mm. phrase, or almost chosen people, I think was the phrase he used. <laughs> and that's, you, you, you know, I have a whole piece in, in First Things when I delivered the Erasmus lecture, uh, I was I was honored to deliver the Erasmus lecture, and it was about this phrase, the almost chosen people, and what Lincoln might have meant by that. And, and so it captured, at its best, it fuels the American imagination in realizing that the United States is playing a providential role in history, but also, of course, that it stands under the judgment of God, which is, of course, a theme in, in Lincoln's in Lincoln's writings and, and rhetoric. And so uh, there are these incredible moments in American history, the ones that we often celebrate the most in the examples of Washington and Lincoln that are so different from, from those of, 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 European, of European victories. It, you referenced uh, Washington's stepping back from power. What are the two most famous artistic images from the revolutionary period? They are Trumbull's Washington resigning his commission, which is a great act of statesmanlike humility, of which George III is reputed to say, have said, if he, if he will have done this, he will be the greatest man on earth, meaning because no one would have ever done this, Yeah, would relinquish power. And then there is Trumbull's Declaration of Independence. Uh, Adams, Jefferson, and the rest of the committee presenting the Congress with the draft of the Declaration of Independence, which is, as it were, an embodiment of America's great covenantal moment. And so those are really the two most famous images, I think, uh, of the American founding. Later, of course, in the 19th century, they gave us this Washington crossing the Delaware, uh, which is also famous. But that was painted much later. Yeah. That yeah, was painted yeah. much later. And so uh, I, I, there's so, I mean, we could talk for a whole separate hour about how the Hebraic imagination inspired, about how Hebraic text inspired, uh, inspired the United States. But I would, I would urge your listeners to do the following. Uh, probably the most famous... One of the most famous uh, correspondence uh, pieces of correspondence from Washington is his letter to the Hebrews, to the Jews of, of Newport. That's very famous. But even more extraordinary, actually, is Washington's letter to the Jews of Savannah, which almost no one knows. Wherein, and that was written earlier, because the Jews <laughs> of America couldn't really come together to send Washington one letter, so they <laughs> sent him. There was like a thousand Jews in America, and they sent him three letters. Uh, but Washington concluded by by writing about uh, the miracles of the Exodus and how mm. those are paralleled in the miracles of the Revolution. It's an absolutely amazing letter, and uh, so uh, one could talk endlessly about how uh, yeah. it, the examples of uh, of Hebraic uh, statecraft and, and history inspired the American founding. Yeah, I mean, it's so beautiful the way that you describe it, because I think, I mean, finding instances anywhere where people kind of cite the Bible as an example or a dime a dozen, but finding instances like that with Washington where people really take it on as an action to be performed and really live it out, I think are so right. rare. That's 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 exactly right. You know, uh, uh, Churchill, to talk about rhetoric again, when did Churchill famously quote the Bible? In his wartime speeches, I had, I had a conversation with Larry Ar with Larry Arn, who, who reminded me of, of a great Churchill biblical quote after Chamberlain returned from Munich. He cited you know, the Book of Daniel, thou, "Thou hast been weighed in the balance and found wanting." But to my knowledge, in actual, in the actual rhetoric of Churchill as Prime Minister, the only one that comes close is a citation of the Book of Maccabees where he cites a speech by Judah before battle in what's, his, in what's known as, uh, as Churchill's B Men of Valor speech. But it's very rare that you'll find Hebraic citations at the heart of his speeches as prime minister. 
But in America, there's all sorts of fascinating examples of Hebraic illusions, I think, in the story of American statecraft. Well, while I regret it, I have to skip forward in time a little bit. Uh, so let's talk. <laughs> let's talk about Menachem Begin and David Ben Gurion. Um, I think that uh, you know, in your book, you present a couple of examples of diff- you know types of leaders where there are kind of two different leaders who take different approaches and both achieve good things. I think the other really interesting example that I hadn't thought about, but which is so true, is Esther and Mordechai um, and how people are able to kind of take two things that are important, having like a strong moral compass and having kind of the political wherewithal to make things happen um, and combine them to be really, really powerful. So can you talk a little bit about um, how Menachem Begin and David Ben-Gurion how their kind of different strategies both wound up combined being so successful in the foundation of the state of Israel. Sure. So cards on the table. Uh, I'm a little biased because Menachem Begin is my hero, uh, and uh, he, and he came he came from the Jewish community in Eastern Europe, where where my family were, where members served as the rabbis, and to this day the Salvatic family is affiliated with the Yiddish name of that community, Brisk, about which Menachem Begin spoke often. So I conclude with Begin because I believe him to have been the great modern archetype of Davidic style statesmanship, by which I mean uh, an embodiment of the blending of of power with a deep sense of providence. Hmm. And I recognize Ben-Gurion as having been the most important person in in the birth of the state of Israel, meaning in 1948, and in its survival and endurance in in the in the war that came upon it uh, as it was founded, or in the midst uh, right which had already been going on already even before the moment of the founding. And so I, I ponder both the importance of Ben-Gurion and how essential he is to the, uh, America, to, to the Israeli story. And, and yet how the contrasts, because his approach to faith was not very traditional, how, how right, an understanding right, right. of Ben-Gurion's achievements allows us to also contrast him with Menachem Begin. And what I conclude with is, uh, I conclude by reflecting on how Strikingly, the Israel that we see today is much, much more uh, an Israeli society that reflects Begin's perspective uh, than than Ben-Gurion's. And so in a certain sense, in a certain sense, uh, speaking as, as obviously a traditional Jew, I think it providential that Ben-Gurion's gifts were directed toward bringing about a country that reflects Menachem Begin's worldview. Whether Ben-Gurion would have been happy with that is a separate question. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, but to give a parallel example, though this is, they're not in any way really the same, but just to use an example from American history, if of the most famous founders, the one who was least believing in providence was Thomas Jefferson. I I still believe it providential that, as Lincoln noted, Thomas Jefferson, given the task of writing a declaration of independence that was supposed to be really just an airing of grievances against the king, <laughs> ended up taking a, a, a great universal idea that all men are created equal. Yeah. And placed it at the heart of America, which defined the American idea forever, and defined the American character forever. Uh, so, just as when uh, Daniel Webster uh, saw in uh, Adams's and Jefferson's death on July fourth, eighteen twenty-six, fifty years to the day of July fourth, seventeen sixty-six, yeah. as a sign of, of of God's providence, I see what Jefferson did as a sign of the providence in which I'm not sure he himself believed. So, so I I conclude the book by yeah. saying that the achievements of Ben Gurion are themselves so 
the story that he helped bring about is so incredible that we can see in it a sign of the providence that he himself might have denied, but in which Menachem Begin ardently believed. And it's, it's worth noting, given all that Israel is facing now, that you see it made this Begin-esque sense made even more manifest. So I'll just give you one incredible story, one very moving clip. But you see this everywhere. Yeah. And and uh, it's 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 really quite striking. There was a, a clip that came maybe two weeks after the horrendously evil attack that Hamas launched on Israel. Yeah. So of the multitudes of, of hostages that were taken, Israel succeeded in liberating one. Yeah. And there was a scene, someone posted on, on Twitter, or X, uh, a, a clip from the Israeli news, just the news broadcast, where a secular Israeli broadcaster, having just received the news that this had happened, he turns to a news commentator that was sitting next to him who was wearing a, a yarmulke, a kippah, a skull cap, and he asked to borrow it. So wow. so he, he, he hands it to him. And so you have the scene, I'm showing it to you on the screen, but just to describe it, <laughs> he, he, the, the guy who usually wears a yarmulke now put his hand on his head, like I'm doing right oh. now, because you know, he doesn't want to be bareheaded <laughs> on, on the screen. And meanwhile, the the secular Israeli anchor puts the kippah on his head and says a blessing. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who frees those in captivity, which is a traditional, uh, a traditional liturgical phrase. Um, And there was an Orthodox, the person who posted it on Twitter was an Orthodox Israeli who works in tech, who wrote and said, had you shown this to me a month ago, I would never have believed it. And, and my friend Dan Sinor, who has a wonderful new book about Israel, uh, he replied on Twitter writing, it was always there beneath the surface. We were just focused on other things, meaning because there was so much vociferous debate about all sorts of things that was going on in Israel before the war. And so what you see is, you see this incredible sense of reliance on God that is being made manifest throughout the Israeli body politic. Not a faith that means, therefore, they shouldn't fight. Of course they're fighting. They're engaging in the ultimate waging of power, which is war. Uh, But at the same time, there's a deep sense of reliance and providence and that this is one more chapter in the, mul- the millennia long story of the Jewish people. And so you see the Begin-esque approach to, yeah. to, to, to statecraft and to the Jewish state uh, really just, just coming to the surface everywhere in, in Israel today. I cite, I think in the book, uh, the ultimate example of where Begin made this manifest, which was when he struck the, where he ordered the, the strike on the Iraqi nuclear reactor at Osirak, which is again the most incredible act of military power and yeah. strategy. But he still saw in that a miracle that it succeeded without any casualties. And the two go together. Power and providence can go together. And we see that again in Israel. Uh, as as we haven't seen it in some time, uh, meaning the meaning the recognition of that. Yeah, it's so beautiful that you say that. Um, and I think one thing that really struck me as I was reading your book was this kind of uh, centripetal power, I guess, uh, of Judaism throughout it, where there's so many figures in your book, uh, like Louis Brandeis or Benjamin Disraeli, who kind of start out at the outskirts and over the course of their lives get drawn further and further to the middle. Yes. Um, and, I'm wondering, I mean, obviously you wrote this book before any of this happened in Israel, Um, but the lessons I think you're trying to teach are timeless. And I'm wondering if your book has a message for 
kind of Jews trying to lead or trying to have hope in the current situation in Gaza, um, what would that message be? Or who should they look to in your book most especially? So uh, just to build on what I said in my previous, in my previous comments, this has been, the past few weeks have been one of the most, uh, on the one hand, depressing periods in yeah. modern Jewish history. And, and simultaneously, because of how Israel has reacted and come together, it's simultaneously been yeah. one of the most inspiring periods. In, in in modern Jewish history, uh, I I another clip and I've been since my my friend Dan Sinor has this book out about resiliency in Israeli society that he co-wrote with his brother-in-law Saul Singer, so I've been sending him constantly whenever I see these embodiments of Israeli resiliency, I I send I send them to him. So yesterday when I sent I sent to him this was. Just to give you the sense of the scene, I'm not even sure how to fully describe the power of it. Uh, there were there, there were Israelis who were amputees, I believe, because of injuries they themselves sustained as soldiers. But now they can't fight because they they're amputees, missing a leg, missing whatever. But they want to do something. They want to do something. So they decide they'll come to they'll do the ultimate Jewish contribution. They'll feed Israeli soldiers, <laughs> so they yeah. come and they cook, and you can't imagine the, the, the board they put together um, uh, to feed the Israeli soldiers. And then they start dancing with the Israeli soldiers. So this is this dark, challenging moment, and they are dancing with joy because they feel that they are part of this miraculous story. That where they are is a miracle. That it makes no sense from the perspective of a secular approach to history, that there, that this people, after being dispersed around the world for 2,000 years, are back where they are, fighting for their land. And they start singing, and the soldiers have their arms around the, the, those who are amputees. So you see one of them in the, in the screen hopping up and down on his one leg. And the song is just two words. Uh, at least the chorus in Hebrew, Baruch Hashem, which means thank God, really, blessed is God. And that's all they're singing. Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem. And, and you might think of this and you say, thank God, you, you've just suffered this terrible attack. You yourself, the one in the, for, in the foreground of the camera, has, has lost a leg. Yeah. But that's what they really believe and understand what a privilege it is to be part of this story. So the phrase with which I, I begin the book and the phrase with which I, I end the epilogue is a traditional Talmudic phrase, which is in Hebrew, David Melech Yisrael Chai V'Kayam. King David lives and endures. By which we mean that his vision of the Jewish people as a providentially guided people and a providentially preserved people. That idea lives and endures. And the, the people in Israel today are, are reflecting their deep understanding of that. A, a bone-deep understanding that sustained Jewish leaders throughout history, that certainly sustained David in his darkest times, and that sustained Menachem Begin in his darkest times, but also sustained people like great queens like Shlom Tzion or Esther, and, and, and great leaders throughout the exile, like Abravanel, who I write about, um, and uh, 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 a God whose providence made itself man made itself manifest in in the stories of people like Brandeis or Herzl, who should really have had nothing to do <laughs> with the Jewish people because of the assimilated way in which they grew up. Uh, uh, and yet somehow find, found their way uh, to impacting the Jewish people, uh, at reflecting the providence that Disraeli, who in a certain sense has a very different story, because he grew up within a Jewish community and then was baptized by his father at 12, but continued to see 
a profound set, continue to look with wonder on the impact of the Jewish people on the world. And so the, the theme throughout is the providential nature of the Jewish people. It's what really people are saying when they say the, the, the phrase you see constantly now, Am Yisrael Chai, that the people of Israel live. Uh, and all that is, is reflected in the mindset of the people of Israel today. To, to see these videos, and you see several of them every single day, is to be inspired, both by the resiliency in their own souls, but also by the wonder that is the story of the Jewish people that begins hundreds of years before King David and is now continuing many, many decades after Menachem Begin uh, led Israel. And so to say that there is hope in, in the midst of the darkness is, is, to, is, to, is, is to really express an, an, an understatement because there is, there is profound light in the midst of the darkness. What a beautiful note to end on. Um, and thank you. I'm so sad that we're at time, but thank you so much for your time and for this wonderful Thank book. you. It's really was a privilege to speak with you. Thank you. And thank you for your kind words and uh, hope to uh, visit Madison in person soon. Yes. Yes. And I have to thank you also, just kind of given my background uh, for introducing me to the figure of Benjamin Disraeli. My copy of Tancred's on oh, okay. the way. It's, I'm it's very excited. It's really one of the the strangest and most fascinating books I've ever yeah. read. Uh, and uh, and and there's a window, I think, into 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 also one of the most mis- enigmatic uh, statesmen in the, in the history of statesmanship. Yeah. My friend Andrew Roberts, I believe, is doing his next bi- his next major biography on Disraeli. And uh, when I uh, when I uh, had a conversation on his podcast about my book, I said, there's so much about Disraeli that remains mysterious. And Andrew responded, uh, no, no, there, there, there won't be a mystery once I've, once I've addressed it. So uh, I'm looking uh, to Andrew resolve all that is mysterious about Disraeli. And I'm sure the book will be absolutely incredible. Yes, I know. Well, that, that British confidence, very Churchillian. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for your time. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it, Madisonians. Rabbi Mayer Soloveitchik on his book, Providence and Power, Ten Portraits in Jewish Statesmanship. You can find the book linked in the show notes, as well as his podcast, Bible 365, and a couple of those examples that he mentioned in the podcast. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please do go ahead, give us some ratings and reviews, follow us. We do read them. We really, really appreciate any and all feedback. You can also find out more about the Madison program at jmp.princeton.edu. There you can find not only all of our upcoming events here on Princeton's campus, but also the entire archive of recordings for all of our previous events that we've held. And you can sign up for our mailing list and get updates on the Madison program directly to your inbox. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope from the bottom of my heart that everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I'll see you next time here on Madison's Notes.